Oh, hi. I'm Dr. K. Mastrocola, physical therapist and mental health meme maker. I've spent the past 10 years navigating life with mental illness, and I found a lot of survival guides out there, but none that talk about what happens next. No one is talking about that radical space between surviving and thriving. So I created this podcast as a way to embrace the awkward in pursuit of finding what success truly means. Thanks for coming along too. This is The Thrive Guide. Welcome back. This is the Thrive Guide podcast, and I am Dr. K. Mastricola, better known as DPTs with Anxiety, and I am so excited to introduce my first guest ever on this podcast, Dr. Angela Fritz. So Dr. Angela, she, her, is a pediatric specialist, and she works out in Seattle, and she specializes in infant development, and she's also an active disability inclusion and equity workforce entrepreneur manager all of the above amazing human being um so angela and i have met angela has slid into my dms about in late december of last year and was like listen i know csm is in february but would you like to join a team of awesome? And I was like, say, say less. I'm there. I will figure out the details later. Um, so Angela and I have spoken on disability inclusion and equity on the national level. And Angela, it is so amazing to see you again. I'm so honored to be here. And it's such a privilege to be your first ever guest. <laughs> oh my God. Pro tip to anybody who is anxious about starting a podcast, invite your friends on first because they won't judge you when you're like, hang on, I got to figure out everything last minute. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so Angela, why don't you tell me a little bit about like more about where you are, what you're doing now, um, and just what you do day to day? Yeah, so I graduated from PT school from the University of Washington in 2014. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, go dogs. Um, I'm a big Husky fan. My husband and I met in PT school. He's an ortho PT. So we got married on UW's campus. We go to football games every, like we just, we love the Huskies. Um, and I have been practicing in pediatrics ever since. So it's been almost 10 years now. Um, and actually, Fun fact, all of my internships in grad school were, were also in peds. So aside from a quick like four weeks little stint I did in outpatient ortho, I'm like a peds therapist through and through. How did you swing that? <laughs> well, my um, my clinical advisors in PT school highly advised against it for good reasons, right? Like it's nice to have diversity and it's good to have exploration. But for whatever reason, I just, I really, really knew that this was the field I wanted to be in. And I was really passionate about getting that experience because I know it can be hard to get into the field of pediatrics without clinical experience. So I was able to meet all the requirements. I went to Maui for my rural um, internship and did early intervention, which was incredible. Um, I And then I did two internships at Seattle Children's. One was inpatient um, working on the with the consult team on the acute care floors, and then one was outpatient in their sports therapy um, clinic. So they were all super different, and they were all super fun. And lucky for me, and much to the relief of my advisors, it worked out great. And I loved peds. A couple of years later, I studied for and passed my PCS. So um, I have my pediatric clinical specialist um, designation, and. Um, 
throughout my career, I have sort of tailored my my experience and my expertise towards infants and um, and the young little tiny humans. And so currently I work at Seattle Children's Hospital. Um, I work part-time inpatient on the infant team. So we see babies in the NICU, PICU, cardiac ICU, um, the cancer care unit, basically wherever there are infants in the hospital, our team works with them. Um, and then I also work part-time at Odessa Brown Children's Clinic, which is a community-based, um, equity-focused community clinic. Um, and I see outpatients there, um, wider range of, of ages and diagnoses. Well, not diagnoses. I see a very wide range of diagnoses in the hospital too, but a wider range of ages um, outpatient, but still with that focus on the infant and, and toddler population. Wow. That is awesome and a lot and kudos to you and like your ability to shelf that too. Cause like, I mean, even in pelvic health, like that weight, you know, of, of sadder stories, it's different than just general outpatient, you know, and, and how do you like go about kind of shelving that? Like what kind of tools do you have to, to manage leaving it at work? Does it stay at work? It's something I've struggled with my entire career. Um, I have always been a very like empathetic, very like sensitive and feeling um, person ever since I was a little kid. Um, And so that's something that I've kind of always had to struggle with is like recognizing that it's okay to to feel about something, but you don't have to carry it on as your own. Um, So therapy, years and years and current therapy uh, helps a lot with that. And I also have a lot of like rituals and strategies that I use to try to keep their, let there be some separation, especially working inpatient in the NICU. Um, Babies are very sick and Seattle Children's is the highest level uh, NICU in the region. And so we get babies from all over the region who come to our hospital for advanced care. So these babies are sicker. Their situations are very intense. Their families are experiencing experiencing a lot of trauma. Um, We lose babies on our unit um, on a not infrequent basis, which is the most heart-wrenching and awful part of our, of our job. Um, And so it it takes a lot of work for me to be able to be there and be fully present and be a strong advocate and sense of support for these families. And working with families during this vulnerable time is something that I love to do. And I'm very passionate about doing, Um, but it's also really important for me to protect myself as well. So I have a facial spray that after work, I spray my face and I say, you know, my mantra, which is you are enough and your work here is done. And say that again, say that again, <laughs> slower, louder. Everyone in the audience say, listening, say, say it with yourself. Go. <laughs> I say you are enough and your work here is done. Oh, I'm stealing that. Stealing yes, that. please do. Please do. <laughs> Is it like a um, facial mist or is it just like water just being like, okay, new, new come, like Hillary Duff come clean, just. Exactly. It depends. Um, I, I switch them up. So right now I do a sunscreen based facial mist so that I protect my skin as well during the, you know, summer months here in Seattle. But usually yeah, I just have like a, like just kind of a water based um, for moisturizing. And I, I'm a big skincare buff. That's like one of my biggest, like, forms of self-care so for moisturizing and then also just for that kind of like cleansing and like kind of like a physical barrier and a physical like transition um of like okay work is done and now I'm going home so oh my god I love that so much 
Okay. So you obviously just spewed a ton of information at us. You are just like oozing in love for your work and career and passion. And obviously evident from fighting for it in PT school. Uh, Here's a hard hitting question. Do you consider yourself successful? Hmm. I think that when I think about success, and it's something that I've thought about a lot lately, because I'm also experiencing kind of like a heavy hit of burnout right now that I'm trying to really work through. Um, And so when I think about success, I think it really is in the eye of the beholder. So like, sometimes I get bogged down by like, you know, obviously, we work in healthcare, which is a very like, fulfilling field, but not always as financially lucrative. I have like a lot and lot, a lot of student loans that I'm going to be paying off probably forever. And that I think a lot of, of like new grads and even I'm not even a new grad and I'm still dealing with student loans. I think it's just people in healthcare can um, relate to that a lot. And so when I look at my friends who might work in tech or other industries who are making two or three times what I make, it's easy to feel like I'm not successful from that perspective. But when I look kind of like at, at, you know, where I am now compared to where I was day one of PT school, like kind of looking forward on my career, I'm like blown away by how far I've come and what I've been able to accomplish. And those like, you know, less than 10 years. And so I try to focus more on that. I try to focus more on the things that I love about my job and the impact that I get to make. Um, You know, one of the biggest things to ever happen in my career was last year, I was awarded the Family Choice Award at Seattle Children's Hospital, um, which is by far the biggest privilege and honor of my career. Um, The family nominated me and I was chosen as um, somebody who exemplifies family-centered care. And to me, that is all I strive for is like, uh, you know, making families feel heard, making sure they feel supported. Um, So things like that, that um, these kind of like little nuggets along the way of my career, like, and, and then getting that huge nugget, like that, those remind me that I am on a path of success Um, And when I get frustrated by the other aspects of it or, you know, feeling kind of burned out by the system and um, the challenges that come with working in healthcare in America that doesn't seem to value um, everybody's lives and bodies, it can feel really, really uh, difficult. But Mm. when I look at the patients and I look at the babies and I look at the families, it's it's worth it. And I, I do feel successful from that perspective. Oh my God. I love that. And it's like, it's nice because it kind of sounds like you like have almost separated and and channeled, like there's different channels of success, right? There's success in what I do in my job daily. There's success in my financial success. There's success in relationships. So it's how do we, how do we bring all those together? And it kind of sounds like you have like very much prioritized that work and your person in the day at that job. If you are successful that day, then therefore you are successful. Do you agree? Yeah. Um, so my brother, who works at Google um, in a very different industry than I do, he's he's very wise, despite being my younger brother. And I, I learn a lot from him. And he told me this years ago, and I'm going to probably butcher it, and I'll have to get back to you on what he actually says. But he has this theory that there's basically three components of, of like a successful, satisfying job. Um, there's like job security, right? So that's like knowing you're not going to lose your job, having good like... Um, 
just opportunities within your job, things like that, and, and like not really having to stress about that. There's also the financial benefits, right? So like how much you get paid, what your healthcare is, if you get a 401k, things like that. And then there's job satisfaction and sort of like um, feeling passionate about what you do. And my brother has a theory that most jobs, you can find two of those that are high, but it's very hard to find a job where all three exist. So at any point in your life and at any point in your career, you have to evaluate which of those are most important for you at the time. So for me right now, I have great job security. Um, during the scary time of layoffs for a lot of people who are working in the tech world, that's not something that I've had to be afraid of in healthcare, even during the pandemic, you know, we were, we were um, essential personnel, we were first line providers. So uh, I feel that job security. And I also have super high job satisfaction. Like I go to work every day knowing I'm making a difference and I'm, and I have a really positive impact on um, a big scale and also on a small scale, you know? And so the financial aspects, like yeah, that's that's never going to be me. Um, like that's just not where we are in this in our society as far as healthcare goes at this point. Um, but that's okay for for me right now. That's not what I'm using to define success. I'm um, to me the things that are more important are having that security and stability, which really helps with my anxiety, and then also knowing that I'm making a positive impact. So there might come a time in my life where that needs to shift, and you know that's another thing about us as PTs is there's like. It's a wide range of places and um, practice settings that we can that we can practice in, and so there are there is room for shifting and changing to be able to find success, um, however you define it. Yeah, that's awesome. And like, so you kind of mentioned something there about like stability and like feeling like unsteady and like you're you're happy where you are being being steady now, right? So great, I'm so happy you're successful. Very cool. It wasn't always like that. Tell me about that. Like what, what was that moment where you were like, I'm on the ground. The wind is knocked out of me. I cannot move forward. But but what brought you back? So the other thing when I think about like success and like my, my journey as, as a PT and as a clinician is, you know, when I first started out, I expected your, my career to go like this. Beep, 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 beep. And then we just stay here, right? And we're at the top and we're successful and there we go. And what I found in in my career, despite it being short, is that it goes like this. Right? Like there's always like ups and downs and there's high points and low points. And, um, you know, I have worked in a job. I live in Seattle, which is a very expensive city. The cost of living is really high. I worked in a job where I was making just about like just above the poverty line, right? Like I was working for a nonprofit though. And I loved it. And I was doing so much good. And, um, and I had great flexibility. Like there were so many really good things about it, but financially it was, it was kind of unsustainable. And so that was kind of a point of panic, um, a point of needing to like shift things around for, for me and for my family. Um, but you know, we dip and then we come up again and I found a job, um, working at the hospital where, you, you know, pay is more, sustainable and more commensurate with what I, you know, what I needed for our family goals and security and stability. Um, and so we come up again. And then I had an experience um, like earlier on in my career with a very, very like challenging work setting um, with like a lot of like 
toxic behaviors and a very, what felt to me like a very unsafe um, work environment. Part of that had to do with like types of communication and different like personality styles just kind of clashing and not working well together. Part of it had to do with like, I think just like an established system that didn't allow for new ideas and for growth, um, which felt very stifling. Um, and part of it had to do with, I, I have a disability. Um, I have several um more invisible disabilities. I have a connective tissue disorder called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which probably a lot of PTs know about, but most people out in the general world, yeah, yeah, don't, don't like know about it. Maybe my knees aren't supposed to bend backwards. What? Totally. <laughs> Um, and I also have moderate to severe hearing loss that I was born with. Um, so I wear hearing aids and I, you know, require some accommodations. I'm wearing AirPods right now, but always have my hearing aids nearby. Um, and I, it was really, really difficult for me to get the accommodations that I needed to practice, um, as a PT with a disability, um, which created this kind of sense of feeling, not supported and not safe in my workplace. And so um, that sort of kickstarted my my drive and my activism to like actually fight for systemic change in ways that I had kind of done a little bit before in my life, but um, really got kicked into high gear with this experience. And so that, that dip in that low um, led to a very, very strong high um, resulting in me helping to found. And now I'm the co-chair of the first ever disability inclusion network at Seattle Children's Hospital, getting to speak at CSM with our group, K, like all these like things that have come from the struggle that have like lifted me up and, and helped um, advance my career in a direction I never expected it to go. And I couldn't be more happy about that. Oh, and I love that. And I feel like that's so important to hear because like, I know, especially with myself, like in PT school, these dips and the lows are so all encompassing. Like, it feels like you, like there is just this invisible hand shoving you underwater. And then for like half a second, it picks you up, you gasp and it shoves you back down. And mm-hmm. that only that second of like head above water, can you like look for a quick second, see what you got to do? And then you're shoved back under. Like how, what kind of things did you like employ? What kind of things like, especially like with a disability, like did people like, did you find that like people were unwilling to assist in your accommodations or did you get a lot of backlash? Still get a lot of backlash. I still get a lot of unwillingness to assist. I still get a lot of uh, defensiveness um, when it comes to things like this. I could go on and on about talking about like the impacts of systemic ableism. I know you can too. Um, And I have a lot of experience with internalized ableism as well, which confounds this whole picture. Um, So when it comes to, you know, kind of like fighting for accommodations and I use that term intentionally, it does feel like a fight. It does feel like me against them. It does feel like, um, kind of like clawing and doing everything I can to get what I just basically need to be able to thrive and survive, um, given the way that my body shows up in this world. And I also recognize the immense privilege that I have as w- with all the privileges that come with my body. Mm-hmm. I have I have independent mobility. Um, so accessing my environment is not an issue for me. Um, my disabilities are largely invisible. So there aren't a lot of the automatic stigmas that come along with, um, folks who do have more visible disabilities. I have 
more autonomy over when and how I'd like to disclose my disability. Um, I'm a white woman. I'm cisgender, hetero. Like I have so many, so much privilege in this world. Um, And so part of the like popping up and coming up above water has been recognizing that and holding on to that and Mm -hmm. using that privilege in order to help those who are not in the same position of privilege. Um, An example I think of was the other day I was, we were at the beach and there was um, a disabled parking spot. And when we got to the beach and when we left the beach, there were people parking in that spot, just hanging out, no disabled placard, no disabled identification on their cars, um, just sitting in that spot because it was right next to the beach. And I got really angry. I got really frustrated. Um, I knocked on the window, you know, kind of good, good. Like just that. <laughs> do you, are you disabled? Like if so, fine. But just so you know, this is a disabled parking spot. Um And, you know, I just, I, I felt this strong, like emotional sense of responsibility because it's not about me. It doesn't affect me that they park there, but it just, it affects all of the people who have disabled placards and need that spot. Um, And so for me to use my privilege as somebody without mobility challenges to be able to advocate for that, it's an important space to be in just as I would hope and wish that folks who don't have hearing loss that don't need the same things as I do would help fight for that for me. So it's not all on me. Um, And I think that's part of what keeps us above water is supporting each other, um, using our intersectional identities to make forward progress. Yeah. And I love that so much because like, there's also that phrase of like, you know, we rise by lifting others. And so if you think about like keeping your head above water, like if I held you on my shoulders, you are immediately above water. And if I could just pick mm-hmm. you up and stand up, you know, cause I know so many people in disabled communities who, who feel burdened by their disabilities and, and who are scared to advocate for what they need, because that's kind of the way society has created that narrative. And I'm sure we could talk for 19 hours more about that, but I just wanted to like pin and applaud you and hope that like my listeners here too, like especially the PTs, like if you are a physical therapist and you are not rooting for and fighting for disability rights, you are not embodying everything your profession is asking of you. And I'm just going to kind of leave that mic drop there. But I do want to circle back to a a term you use. I want you to define it because it was a term that I I am like sitting on the panel at CSM and our friend um, Katala is talking and I am like having an existential crisis as he's talking about it. Um, Internal ableism. Floor is yours. What does that mean to you? What is your experience like with that? Internalized ableism is... um something that I just recently have um, verbiage for, you know, and like terminology to describe, but it's something that I have felt and I have struggled with my entire life. Um, So I got my hearing aids, my first pair of hearing aids when I was five. Um, My hearing loss was late to be diagnosed and blah, blah, blah. We'll go into, we, you know, don't need to go into why that happened. Um, But I I was a late diagnosis. And so before that I had um, speech delays. I, was um, getting in trouble for not listening at school. Um, I remember like I was at an event recently where um, what somebody said, you know, turn on your listening ears, everybody. I need you to turn on your listening ears. And I had this like visceral reaction. I was like, 
like triggered and mm. I and I didn't really understand why. And then I was thinking back to that, like before I had my hearing aids, when my preschool teacher, my kindergarten teacher would, I would get in trouble for not using my listening ears when as I'm sitting there, I'm saying I am, you know, I'm trying to use my listening ears. I can't hear you. And I didn't, I didn't know that at the time, but this was continuing to perpetuate this idea that something is wrong with me, that this is bad about me. You know, even with my hearing aids, I miss things. Even with my hearing aids, I've been called, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just kind of like ditzy. Yeah. Like ditzy, like, um, like just, yeah, I don't, I don't pay attention. I'm spacey. Yeah. I'm, I don't, um, respond always. I say what a lot, you know, like, and, um, basically over a lifetime of these sort of things happening to you, of you learning that you're wrong. And, Mm. you know, this is this part of you that you, that you've been born with and that is integral to who you are is wrong and you should fix it and you should hide it. And, you know, don't let it affect any aspect of your life. Um, It was carried with me forever to the point where I started lying about my hearing loss. I would not show anybody my hearing aids. I quit wearing my hearing aids for a really long time in school, which had a lot of impacts on my mental health, on my, my schooling, on my friendships. Like, I mean, it just, it, there was a lot of like negatives to that, but ultimately the social price to pay was too high to wear my Mm -hmm. hearing aids with uh, the bullying and the teasing. And so, um, so I kind of spent all of my school age years um, struggling with that. And it wasn't really until PT school that I sort of felt a different narrative. I remember um, the first day of PT schools and we uh, like, we're doing kind of intros and everybody's sharing about themselves. And I knew that I had to tell my classmates about my hearing loss. I knew like I wasn't going to succeed in this program. I wasn't going to be able to skate by anymore um, by like kind of, trying to pass as hearing. Um, and so I told them and nobody blinked. Everyone was like, cool, you know, cool. That's part of you. And furthermore, my classmates would save a seat for me at the front of the classroom so that I could be closest to the speaker and I could read lips. And, um, you know, it just, it, it wasn't just now this isn't wrong. It was just like, Hey, this is a part of who you are. And we embrace who you are. Um, all parts included. Um, and so slowly over time, I started to have more of these positive experiences and it helped me shift the way that I thought about my hearing loss as well as years and years of therapy, as I already mentioned, mm-hmm. um, as not something wrong with me, but as just a, it's a part of me and it's an important part of me. And honestly, I love it because it's, you know, of course I don't love my hearing aids. I have this very love hate relationship with them. Um, and there's a lot of challenges that come with um, my disability, but it is an integral part of who I am. I so strongly believe that it has made me kinder and more compassionate. And it has given me, you know, a bit of a personal connection to the world of disability, which has really helped me see so much beauty and pride. And, you know, we're recording this in July and July is disability pride month. And, you know, if you would have told me as a six year old that my disability is something I would be proud of, I just never would have believed you. But here I am like, sharing it and embracing it and, um, and fighting for it to be included and, um, just an aspect of human diversity. That's beautiful just as it is. Yeah. And I mean, part of that too, like is success. Like you are like, what is your visceral reaction? If I were to tell you like, Oh, Angela, like you are a success story. What is your visceral reaction to that? 
That's a very interesting question. Um, because before I had, I've gone on this journey to kind of like dismantle my own ableism and learn more about ableism, I would have been really proud of that. I would have hmm. been like, yes, you know, like I'm successful. My disability didn't drag me down. Um, you know, I, I, I would have liked to hear that. Um, I loved it when people would say, when I would tell people would find out I had hearing loss and they're like, oh my God, I couldn't even tell. And I would yeah. be like, so proud, right? Like I've tricked them into thinking that I'm normal. And the more I learn about that, the more yucky that is and the more messed up that is and the more ableist that is. Because first of all, your worth is not dependent on your success. Your worth is not dependent on your productivity. If you never get a degree, if you never if you never, you know, make money in the traditional sense in this world, you are still a worthy human with value and deserving of dignity. And uh, the clinic that I work at, the the slogan of our of our healthcare institution, which was founded um, by Black women activists um, fighting for equitable, um, safe healthcare for people of color in Seattle um, decades ago, the the kind of slogan and mission of our clinic is quality care with dignity. Mm-hmm. And when I first started at the clinic, I was so enamored by that, by that phrase. And one of the physicians who's been working there for 30 plus years who just retired just recently told us that, you know, dignity is different than respect. Respect is given. Respect is some people believe is earned, but dignity is inherent. Mm. Dignity you are born with. You don't earn it. You don't give it. You have it. You are it. And to me, that is like the, that is like the pinnacle of healthcare, whether you have a disability or not, that, that our patients and our families and, you know, the people that we work with and us as human beings, we, we have this inherent dignity that is not dependent on all of the markers that society puts on us, how much you make, how long you work, how many sick days you do or don't take, um, that your, your dignity is, is with you no matter all of those things. And so in that case, I would say that, you know, everybody is a success story. Everybody is living a life that they, they're living the best life that they can with what they have. And they are, um, they're, finding the journey that that is best for them. And it might look different than what is best for me or best for you. Um, so I have a bit of a different response to that. You yeah. are a success story now. <laughs> oh my God. I love that so, so much. And like, I love that, like, you know, little, like in all positive ways, like tangent, right? Because it is so important. I mean, like even in, in the conversations we had prior to CSM of, of defining it more as um, instead of allyship, like accomplice, you know, like I am an mm-hmm. accomplice to disability rights and it's like, Ooh, like it is just more powerful. Um, and mm-hmm. so, you know, my mom, she would always tell me, and I mean, she's the most badass woman I know. She's like, you give respect to get respect. You do not demand respect. And like, mm. and so I think that that is something I carry so heavily in my career is every patient who walks in my door has a story and we ask their occupation, right? But that's more from a functional mm. movement standpoint. We don't, you mm. know, you only get 15, 20 questions on an intake form, but then you get 20 to 30 minutes to really ask them the important things that matter. Um, and so going back to like internal ableism and you know, that was, again, a phrase that I was unaware of truly. And it's defined as like, 
we put barriers, we put blocks on ourselves, right? Because we we don't want to be seen as disabled. We want to hide it. Like we have our own negative connotations towards our own disabilities. Like we are ableistic to ourselves. We allow that narrative to thread through our lives. Um, and sometimes that can be the most blocking thing is mm-hmm. our own internal narrative. Like, yeah, like kids are cruel and growing up, like, you know, it's hard. PT school is going to like run you in the ground, but it's at the end of the day, when your head hits the pillow, it's like, what thoughts are going through your head? They're your own. Um, mm-hmm. And to like side tangent a little bit, like on like my own life and experience, like with mental and invisible illness, I had a dad with spina bifida with very, very visible disability. Some of my best friends had autism very, very visible disability. And I had undiagnosed ADHD and panic disorders. And I'm like, no, like I'm not disabled. This Mm -hmm. is not a learning disability. Like this is not quote unquote a disability because I have a fully functioning body. There's nothing wrong with me. Um, And so I just want kind of everyone listening to like, take a second, pause if you need to and evaluate your own internal ableism. How are you responding to yourself, your body, your lived experiences. And if you were to clone yourself and make yourself your patient, would you respond to them differently? So mm-hmm. just kind of saying, saying that out loud. And Angela, I want to circle back because this is all just so amazing. Um, you were kind of talking about that transition between like kind of like high school in your hometown and then moving to college and feeling accepted. You know, I have this phrase that is basically the tagline of this podcast of, you can be the entire package and sent to the wrong address, right? In mm-hmm. that moment, like in high school, like when you are in that area of just like stuck without an opportunity to get out because you switch jobs when when things were not what were fitting for you. And mm-hmm. I feel like in, in this adult quote unquote successful life, we have more privileges to jump like that. Um, but for people who may be in that like spot of academia or spot of of just like can't leave, don't have the privilege to leave, um, mm-hmm. what kind of things, what kind of mantras like went through your head? Like when you, when you were stuck to get you, get you through it, that, that motivated you to, to realize it was worth keeping going for. I think that's a really good point, Kay, is that like, you know, even in the current state of things in this world and, um, a lot of the things that are happening, um, in America where we live, like oftentimes my response is, Oh, I, you know, I don't want to live here anymore. I'm going to leave. Like, and sometimes that's the right choice, right? Like you have to like, listen to yourself and your safety and your needs. And sometimes that's the right choice, but that's also my privilege speaking. Like you mentioned, like it is a privilege to be able to change your situation, to be able to move, to be able to switch. And, um, and in a situation like school or when you're younger, or if you don't have the, if your life situation doesn't allow for it at the time, leaving a a toxic situation is not always the right choice. It's not always the possible choice. And if we always leave, if we always flee, if we white flight, right? Like that everybody always talks about when it comes to like racial justice. And if we don't stay and we don't fight and we don't try and fix the systems that are breaking us, then we're not going to fix anything for, you know, I'm not going to fix anything for the little, the little Angie, who's the six-year-old with hearing loss, who's coming up now, right? Like, I don't want her to go through what I went through. Yeah. And so I think changing the perspective from when I went from this sucks for me, this is hard for me, this is unfair for me to 
what can I do about this? And how can I make this better? I always thought, you know, like in therapy, some people do like, like little child or like inner child work, right? Like, yeah. So I, I literally like think about myself as a six-year-old in first grade with my big fat purple hearing aids, right? Like taking up my whole ear. My, I love them. And I learned quickly that my classmates do not and they're not cool and they're not okay. Like how, what can I do now that will change that for that little girl right now? Mm. And how can I help dismantle these stigmas around hearing aids? How can I... How can I change the way that society thinks about hearing loss and deafness and disability so that she doesn't get bullied, so that she feels included right from the get-go and doesn't live through this life of internalized ableism that I did, where she's afraid to acknowledge her hearing loss. She doesn't access the resources she needs. She doesn't get support. She lies to her best friends. Mm. I mean, that, that I robbed myself and my friends of a of an opportunity for deeper connection by my unwillingness to be vulnerable. And and I did that because of a sense of safety, right? I learned that it wasn't safe to disclose, but that's that's part of what I want to change in the work I do now is I want us to as a society to think about human diversity with a much broader scope. Right now what is normal and what is acceptable whether it's, it's not even just about disability. We do the same thing if people have a different haircut, if they have a different body size, if they're wearing different clothes than what the magazines tell us is, is acceptable. Like we just have such a narrow definition of what, what normal and acceptable is. And my hope is that with each of us, as we share our stories, as I show my hearing aids on social media and and kind of like expose a part of myself that I have kept a secret for so long and somebody else with hearing aids or somebody else who has a little girl with hearing aids can see that and see that represented in a positive light, then we start to change that narrative. We start to break down those barriers to inclusion and belonging. When you share about your neurodivergent brain and the different ways that you learn and the ways that you overcame the struggles that you have, like you are breaking open doors for other people who are in a similar position to you. And so I think shifting the lens from ourselves to all of us, right? Which inclusion, like disability advocates are always about all of us. Yeah. They are always about let's include everybody, whether it's a physical disability or mental disability or developmental disability, or you, you, have a different mobility way of getting around. You live in a different body than society deems as acceptable. Like disability rights are about everybody's rights. And if we can kind of shift to that lens, I think it can open up a lot of freedom for um, changing our situation without changing our location, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah. And I mean, like so much power in all of, all of what you said and it, it really does kind of like boil down to it's like we cannot define success until everybody has access to be successful. And it is mm -hmm. like, oof, like oh, we don't have time to unpack all of that, like in the John Mulaney line. <laughs> for sure. All right, this podcast has been completed. There is nowhere nowhere else for us to go from here. <laughs> We're done. We've that, solved that it. it. We you have said, figured out you these guys. Here. Thank you. Thank you all. Good night. One episode and done. This has been a limited presentation. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god angela this has been no in all seriously so much freaking fun so you did mention your social media where you are breaking down barriers what is that social media so i can send everybody to follow your greatness 
Well, thank you so much. Um, first of all, I love your account. Um, it brings me so much joy and helps me find my own um, little anxious self in all your memes. So thank you for all the work that you do. Um, my social media account is called BBPT, um, B-E-B-E underscore underscore PT. And I share a lot about infant development and a lot about um, disability advocacy and my own experience with hearing loss. So everybody is welcome in that space. And there are a lot of cute babies. So come join along. Yes. And a lot of really great information on like the peds world. Like, and I'd love to have you like back again in like almost like a soloed episode just in your like experience going through like peds for anybody who wants to take that track. I think a ton of our listeners would love to hear kind of your experience there too, how you navigated that. Again, so many subsectors of success. So <laughs> this is just maybe time. Okay. Okay. I'll, I'll come doing. back anytime. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay. Two more questions before we wrap up. The first is, you know, we talked a lot about the in-between, a lot about the in-between and that kind of feeling of stuckness and things like that. What advice would you give to yourself? Like you, you have one phrase, you have 30 seconds to go back in time. What would you tell her? You are enough. Mm. I think it, it comes down to that. I think a lot of the times where I felt stuck, where I felt, um, like I was drowning and dipping down was feeling that I needed to be different. I needed to do different. I needed to, I wasn't successful based on these external measures of success. But the truth is there was, I mean, and we didn't get into this, but there was a moment in PT school where I wanted to drop out, where I was mm-hmm. crying on the floor in the cadaver lab, feeling like I had failed, um, called my cousin, telling her I was going to move abroad and live with her and just drop out of school. And if I had done that, that's okay. Like that, that would have been the journey for me, right? Like, I'm glad I didn't because I love this life that I'm living. But we are not enough because of the choices that we make. We are enough because of who we are. And if I never do another thing again, like what I've done is enough. And I think that is the advice that I wish I had. And I wish I'm sure somebody had told me that, but I didn't internalize it. So Yeah. And I make the joke and I was like, you know, like whole package wrong address. I'd get that tattooed on my forehead. Mm -hmm. But you have this phrase tattooed on you. I do. I do. (laughs) I do have you are enough. Where do you have you are enough tattooed? I have it on my hip. Oh my my God. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. My last question for you, major mic drop moment. Repeat that mantra for us one more time. Everyone grab your like imaginary like spritz bottles. You got you got suntan get your lotion. Spray, get your spray. You're leaving We're the hospital. You're leaving the clinic. You're leaving the PT school. Our like mask campus. Off, like mask are off. And figuratively. Yep. Yep. And you're going to, you're going to spritz your face. You're going to cleanse all the shit off and you're going to say you are enough and your work here is done. Oh my God, Angela. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so, so much. I will have all the links to uh, like your Instagram account and such in the show notes below. Um, Again, if you wanted to follow Angela, it is BB underscore underscore PT on Instagram and like now on threads because that's a thing too. So I guess follow us there. Is that the thing we're supposed to say? (laughs) <laughs> who knows <laughs> oh, Edward, always a pleasure <laughs> I love you so much thank you so much Kay uh, love you bye thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Thrive Guide presented on the PT Pinecast Network if you like what you heard please leave a review or a comment down below it helps other people find us you can check out links to everything mentioned in the show notes below thank you again and keep on thriving